TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to the Permanent Record, the Exit Interview Edition. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. And the Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. For this episode, I interviewed Allison Gibbs, the outgoing Director of Programs and Operations for Just City. Allison has moved home to South Florida. Allison was Just City's first and only employee for about half of 2015 before I was hired as the executive director. She has almost single-handedly built this organization and has been responsible for keeping it running for the last two years. We're still not sure what we're going to do without her. She moved a few weeks ago, but before she left, we recorded an exit interview of sorts, during which we discussed her motivations for becoming a teacher, then a reformer, who inspires her, and what's next when she gets settled back home. We hope you enjoy it. Hey, Allison, thanks for being on the permanent record. Thanks for having me. Allison, I'm really sad that you're leaving town. I am. The time has come, the walrus said. Where are you going? I'm going to Miami, Florida, my hometown. Yeah? Yes. You've been in Memphis how long? Six years. Six years. Came here for TFA. Yes. I came here in 2011 after I graduated from college and... um, Memphis was my placement for Teach for America, and I said, okay, I'm moving to Memphis. I actually knew nothing about Memphis. I um, Originally, on the placement process, I placed Nashville as one of my picks Ooh. because I knew about Nashville. <laughs> and then when I got Memphis, I was, I was sitting in my senior seminar class. I got in the acceptance, and it said where you were going. And I was like, eh. Memphis will work. Okay. What's the? Let's get this out of the way. Mm-hmm. What's the best thing about Memphis? Someone's not from here and is leaving here. I would say the food, <laughs> and I would say um, just because I grew up eating a lot of chains, so I have loved being able to have access to a lot of local food places. And I, with the exception of going to Chick Fil A in Starbucks on occasion, I don't eat at chain restaurants Mm -hmm. because we have so much good local food that I really find no reason to. So what's your favorite restaurant? Hmm. I I have a couple. Um, Rizzo's is one of my favorites. Yes. Um, Rizzo's and second line lunch special specifically. (laughs) Um, it's a good deal. It's like 10 bucks. mm -hmm. You get a po' boy and a side. 10 bucks. And it's the $10 and get your ass back to work lunch special. That's That's, those are their words. Those are Kelly English's words, not mine. We would never use that language. I don't know what curse words are. Um, and then I think I, I also love the local, like, um, Small batch local coffee. So I'm actually looking right across in the Crosstown studio at one of my favorites, which is French Truck yeah. Coffee. And then the other one is a new coffee chain um, that just opened in the last two months, Edge the Edge yes. Coffee. It's Home of the $20 breakfast. Yeah. I, not necess- I'm not going to be disparaging. Right. I right. just love their not. coffee. Mm-hmm. Right. So <laughs> this is a podcast about Allison's favorite place to eat. No. You are, I, I probably, you know. In Frost Bakery. In Frost Bakery. I've never been to Frost Bakery. I know. Um, Director of Programs and Operations at Just City yes. is your formal title. Yes. You were the first employee 
of Just City. I was. For quite a while, several months before me, right? Yes. Since June of 2015? June 2015, yep. And we are in September 2017, so two and a half years, almost two and a half. It's not a stretch at all when I tell people all the time, and, and I've told you, and I will say it now into this microphone, that you essentially built this organization. Like the backbone of this organization is your work uh, as as, as simple as setting up an account for something, but also giving us process and checklists and uh, guides to how we do things. And uh, it's going to be a huge, uh, huge loss to leave you. I'll save the, the sappy goodbye, I guess, maybe for the end. But what, I guess what I want to talk about is, is your transition from teaching into helping build a nonprofit, which is whether it's criminal justice, whether it's, you know, food, whether it's any sort of nonprofit, like what you've done over the last couple of years is completely different from what you came to Memphis to do. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that, the decisions and how you arrived where we sit today. Sure. Okay. So it kind of, I've got to go a little bit more backward in the story, but not too long winded and I have a tendency to be so so oh, I'll cut you off don't yes. worry <laughs> um so I think it kind of got started when I was in high school I went to a Coral Reef Senior High School in Miami and it is a um, mega magnet school in Miami and I was in the Legal and Public Affairs Academy so I just knew that I was going to become an attorney and <laughs> I was convinced that I was going to join the Cochran Law Firm and or become the first like female version of Thurgood Marshall like those like I was just going to become a civil rights attorney and fight take on big cases and like that is what I wanted to do I was in mock trial for three years in high school I was the mock trial captain for two of them I did constitutional law contests um, wrote briefs and all that. Like, I just knew I was going to do that. And so I went to the University of Florida, majored, obviously, what does any good pre-law student major in? Political science. And so I majored that in that. And um, I actually kind of had a... Um, it was really a crisis of credits in the sense that, like, I had too many credits going into college um, to just stay there for four years and just be a political science major. And by that, I just mean... I had to pick up another major in order not to be kicked out of college at, like, 20. Um, and so I decided – I took an intro sociology class. Yeah. And I was like, this is cool, and it's easy, so I'll just pick it up as my double major so I don't have to, like, graduate two years early because I had too many credits. Um, and that, I think, was kind of the shift in doing the stuff that I wanted to do. I also think that I started to want to do um, – Yes, it's a podcast, so you don't know that Mayor Jim Strickland is standing right outside the window. Can I say Jimbo? I don't he, live here anymore, no. so no, we got to scratch that. The mayor of Memphis is, is a lawyer, so it's relevant to the story. It is. Uh, he did it go is. to law school. You did not. I did not. It's not too late. It is not, and it's also not off the list, um, but that guy. Hey, dude. Um, so, so, yes, and so I, I when I took that intro class, it kind of shifted – what I wanted to do in college and yeah, basically yeah. shifted me away from going into um, law school. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and your mo mom's a teacher. I don't want to get you yes. too far off the, oh, no, you're the fine. trail, but like your mom's a teacher. So yes. that probably didn't Becoming a teacher <laughs> was not too much of a stretch, right, right. Um, but I also didn't get like a really good picture of what it took to be a teacher. Uh, she taught for 36 years and I think she had her own, like that was her calling and that was her passion and like she was very very good at that um and I thought that I could do that mostly because it kind of fit within 
this space that I'd come across after being at UF, having the intersection of sociology, and then picking up a minor in African American studies of wanting to do work that impacts black and brown people in their daily lives to have them have access to power and opportunities. Um, And so because I decided I no longer wanted to become a lawyer, or rather I no longer wanted to go to law school, and TDFA was very persistent in their recruitment of me, I said, sure, let's let's do Teach for America um, and be a teacher. And I prayed about it long and hard. I thought about it long and hard. I applied in the very last deadline, like the 20th hour, because I wanted to be sure I was applying because I wanted to be in the classroom either getting that experience for myself and or making an impact on students and not just because it would look really good on a resume, which is why, honestly, a lot of my college colleagues did it. And I wanted to make sure I had to check my motives and thoughts before I yeah. went into that. Talk about it in terms of paths. You've talked to me about this before, about mm-hmm. like paths that you get on, paths that you get off. What are the ones that you're still on? Because you're not on the TFA, the education path right I'm, now. I'm but I feel a, like you're com- as committed as ever to uh, the same type of empowerment for people of color, as you said. So talk about the yes. paths that you're still on. Sure. So, um, I, like I said, my kind of life's mission is to do whatever it is that provides access to power and opportunity for black and brown people, full stop. So whether that is in the education space in college, I ran a nonprofit that did um, food recycling or upcycling, I guess you could say, to minimize food waste and then to provide food for low-income families. That's new information Uh, for me. I I don't remember that from your resume. No? Oh, okay, yes. So that was four years, and that kind of is what started my interest in not in the nonprofit sector um just having done that work and kind of the fulfillment that i had and also like the the benefit it provided people um that were clearly not um independently wealthy enough to afford all their meals themselves but also didn't like fit the homeless markers it's that that gap of folks and, and surprisingly homeless services are very well filled um, and then people who can pay for their own things can take care of themselves but that working poor where I'm missing a couple of meals a week that's a whole nother story and another path um, but it, it's a path that I understood okay food is important and communities of color don't have it often housing is important communities of color often don't have access to adequate housing um, education is important and having worked in the education space and also I guess maybe I'm too much of an altruist or um, a purist, and so when something is um, doesn't seem to live up to the promise that it had or does not keep moving forward with the mission that they have or they have this mission on paper but they go about it in ways that don't align with my morals and my values, I'm also very values-driven, and um, I doing some education work and educational reform work, not so much the classroom work, but the policy work, um, really turned me off to being in the education reform space. And so I didn't want my black face in my woman's body to be used as a puppet mm-hmm. any further to further agendas that I did not agree with. And so that's why I ultimately made the decision to leave that space. Yeah. Um, not maybe for forever, but definitely for a time because I was jaded and very upset by it. And I knew I ultimately couldn't serve students well. Yeah. But I still wanted to work in a space that um, had an impact on communities of color. Right. And, and, that's, and that's what you've done. Um, Interjust City. Interjust City. And that's very challenging language, though, that you use, especially as a, a white man 
who is the executive director of Just City. But um, you are also a leader of this organization, and um, probably uh, to a fault at times, uh, that has not been obvious to the community around us. Um, uh, what, and you've, I think, been a very effective uh, at your role there. What makes an effective leader, whether it be a black woman, a white man, of an organization that, uh, whether it be TFA or Just City or, or, or a food waste organization, what makes it effective at serving, at, at, as you said a minute ago, providing access to power mm-hmm. for uh, black and brown people? I'm probably, and my um, African-American studies professor probably would hit me on the head for butchering my terminology, um, but I think it, it all comes down to... Um, what lens you look at things through. So I always look at things through an intersectional lens. One, because I just have a lot of intersections as a person. And two, I think as a trained sociologist, I guess I've been like academically programmed to think in ways that look at all the different components to a whole and understand how different things impact one another. Um, And so to go back to the direct question you asked, it's, it's people that understand and in, in are okay with taking a minute to understand how they show up in a space, even if we're not talking about race, we're not talking about gender, like the conversation seemingly is not those things, how people show up in places and spaces matter, and it has an impact. And navigating that and understanding where you, where you are as a person in power, as the, the, the face of an organization or the voice of an organization, um, it's, matter- about, it's about learning mm-hmm. how to process that as yes. and, and see and being what other willing, people see. Yeah, and being willing to do so. And I think I think one of the lessons that I've learned in, in this space is, um, you know, not just assuming that all the white people that want to do this work like have hidden agendas, and also not assuming that all the black people or people of color that do this work in people of color's names are altruistic and in, in earnest in their endeavors either. Um, a, a friend of mine told me the saying, it's not her saying, but she told everybody that your color is not your kind, and I've learned that. He, working here in Memphis, um, not here at Just City, but working in Memphis, it's kind of been one of the valuable lessons that I've learned to really suss out people's motives and to see if their actions and their words align with what their mission statements are and their glossies and whatever. Um, that's the better indicator of how it is that they will lead um in 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 giving people power and not just in a checkbox form like oh we did this community engagement activity because the grant from the state requires us to so we're going to do it to get out of the way and then move forward i've seen that happen a lot in other nonprofit spaces especially in education space that i came from um it's it's being okay with not having all the answers it's, it's being okay with being messy and conceding power at times right. because you know that ultimately builds power in the people that you say you're working on behalf of but if you're never doing anything to meaningfully engage them and I don't mean just give them something um, but meaningfully engage them and get their input get their buy-in work with them work through the tough things make sure that they're a part of the decision making process you're just in eventually going to just be profiting off of their poverty, profiting off of their inequality, profiting off of their pain. Um, and 
a leader that can see that, can realize that, can communicate that to their stakeholders, to their funders, yeah. and is able to push forward through that challenge, I think is someone who could stay in this work in the long haul because they'll maintain the credibility that they need to do the work in the yeah. communities they serve, as well as maintaining the resources to be able to do the work. Yeah, but that's really, really hard. I mean, it is. You just challenged me uh, very seriously, and because I think just like so Gauntlet. many, right. Thrown, I just dropped something. Thank for you. People who can't see. You're welcome. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, extremely challenging. Um, so you're headed back to South Florida where you grew up. Your yes. mom still lives there. You yes. have family there. Um, you've, you've been very honest and, and open with me about, you know, kind of this moment we're in um, as a country, as a city. Um, it's, hard, it's hard not to be when we work in an open <laughs> workspace yes. and our desks are right next to each other. But, um, you know, it's 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 got to be, forgive me for my presumption and, and my white <laughs> privilege when I say this, but difficult to experience this moment we're experiencing as a country um, from, from our leadership, from you know, so many other issues right now as a black woman. Mm-hmm. And just without getting, you know, I don't want to get too personal maybe, but your, your decision to go home and, and all of that, you know, that, all of that that's happening did that have any impact on your decision? I think tangentially. Um, so yes and no. So the decision to go home for me is, is largely like personal because of just some health issues and some family things going on that I need to take care of. But um, I also believe that everything happens for a reason. And while I'm working on my faith relationship, I, I believe that um, God, the divine, the universe has a way of working things out. When I left education, it was because I no longer believed in what I was actually doing there and and felt that I was in a space that was not servicing students the way in which they should and the way in which they said. Um, And there was some time figuring out what it is that I want to do. And I was actually coming into Just City at this, and I was actually listening to a podcast, I think, the first, in preparation for my first week, and it was a podcast that was speaking about the Khalif Browder incident. And at that moment, there was something changing and shifting in the country when I was moving out of this education space and this conversation was picking up about criminal justice reform, about bail reform, about Rikers Island and things of that, like that. And so that shift and transition in my life, I think, while I made it, out of one circumstance, it became fortuitous for me to be in this space and shifting at that time. So while the way in which I understand my personal decision to go home, I again think that it's fortuitous and I'm going back home to a city that is being going to be devastatingly impacted by DACA decisions to come and immigration reform yeah. and the collusion of that along with the criminal justice system um, I don't think that there's a mistake. Like, that's not my, like, conscious intent behind it, but just how I've seen kind of God, the divine, the universe work before to put me in the right place at the right time. I believe that I'm going home at a time, going home to that specific place at a time such as this. And to the point of, you know, our country now as a black woman, I don't think it's any different. I mean, I'm now in my adulthood. Yeah. And... But I don't think that the story in the field in the country now is different for people of color. Like, I'm, I'm an adult, so I'm more aware of certain things. But, I mean, it's just that I think maybe now progressive white folks feel it more. 
but like if you're a person of color, this has been the existence. And so now just more people are more cognizant of it. There's more social media to capture things. There's more cameras looking at it. But like this has been going on since enslaved persons were brought here. So this isn't anything new. It's just other people are now experiencing it and there's a conversation about it. But like to give you hope. It does. It does. And and I don't want to be my normal, cynical, sarcastic self, but it really does give me hope. And I really do at my core and believe that people are good at their core. Um, I've had interesting conversations with people that I wouldn't necessarily agree with, but I believe for the most part people are good and they want good things. It's just they have a different set of experiences. They have different lenses. They have different thing, ways in which they, they look at the world. Um, and it, it takes conversation and this is kind of like my stump point. Like when I talk about just city, Mm -hmm. we want to talk differently and more deeply about the criminal justice system, like getting into the nuances, getting into the gray area where everything isn't so clean and clear cut is where you can really have conversations for people to think less black and white and understand that this may have happened to this person and this is their experience and to just just to think yeah, at all. It's also that same thing you were talking about earlier that too about re- recognizing what you bring into that yes. space or that conversation mm-hmm. or, or that situation, how you observe it. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the really, really hard, hard work. And so I'm a little bit hopeful too. I think I'm a little more jaded and cynical than, than you, but I think I'm a little hopeful. I don't think too. that's possible. <laughs> we, may, we may be jaded and cynical in different ways, but we may be equally jaded and cynical. Well, I'm, so, I'm somewhat hopeful because I think that what, what we see when there is more recognition mm-hmm. of, of the, the black experience in particular um, is that people may be more willing to do the hard work. A few more people maybe do, mm-hmm. or, or the people who are already doing it may be ready to work harder. So I'm, I'm a little bit hopeful because I think that's, uh, you've said some very insightful things about bringing your experience into it and recognizing other people's experience, and that's that intersectionality that you're, you discussed. Um, but I have no doubt, that, personally, that you will stray that you will not stray from the path that you've sort of laid out for us of of getting power uh in the hands of the people that need it um and i'm excited to see what happens uh (laughs) to allison gibbs wherever and um the organization at just city as long as it exists will have your fingerprints on it uh there's no doubt in my mind of that um, but what what parting advice do you leave Just City with? Um, and you know you don't have to <laughs> you don't have to you, you don't have to answer that actually if you don't want. But no, 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 what, no. what do you want to um, say about the future of Just City, the future of Memphis, and what we're working on here? I feel like for the future of Memphis, Memphis has to get out of its own way. <laughs> um, and I've been taking to task I remember I was on a panel with a school board member and I used the phrase the city that killed King and how it had the impact on the city just now not being a Memphian right like there was a lot of assumptions that I made making that statement and not being a Memphian who lived during that time to actually see in real life the changes but from being a student of history and being able to see like Memphis was on this sort of upward yeah. progression, and then it stalled, flatlined, then regressed, right? And so I feel like we're at another point, and in, in, I was taking the task for using that phrase because, like, well, the city didn't kill King. I'm like, no, I understand that. One, I use that as, like, a rhetorical device to bring attention to a mm-hmm. statement because that's what good writers and um, people <laughs> do. But the point was that, like, 
all the conditions in a city like Memphis or it could have been San Francisco or Miami, whatever, were such that this place needed him here to do this thing and this thing happened to him, right? And so it had an impact on the place that we're in. And so I see a lot of, I mean, just the very building we're sitting in now, Crosstown Concourse, and there's a lot of progress happening and things changing and there's a lot of momentum but I hope Memphis stays enough out of its own way to let it continue and to let the city be what it can be and make sure this is a place where all Memphians, not just the socially acceptable ones, not just the, oh my God, I love Memphis. You know, like not just like the cheerleaders of Memphis or because it's still, it's everyone's city. And so finding a way for everyone to to, to get on board with the progress in understanding that progress looks different for different people. This might not be the space for everybody here in this physical space, but making sure that there are enough spaces, enough resources being poured into other parts of the city so that the city is whole, so that White Haven, so that Fraser, so that Smoky City, so that um, uh, Hickory Hill, so that all these different parts can thrive in the way in which is relevant and appropriate for those communities to thrive because setting up a French truck coffee (laughs) works very well here, but that's not the hallmark or the benchmark for success in some other places and recognizing that that is okay, but whatever the progress looks like, if it's what the community wants and what they deem is appropriate and how they vibe and get with it, then that is progress and we need to embrace that because people can be proud of their own things and yeah. we can all move forward. And it's okay for your progress and your pride to look different from mine. That's right. totally fine. Well said. Well said. Well, uh, more than two years ago now, a long time ago, one of us came up with this uh, device on these note cards or whiteboards where we would write, uh, where they would say, in a just city, dot, dot, dot. And, and you've taken pictures of and, and overseen probably hundreds of those cards mm-hmm. Uh, being created and photographed and things. Is there one that you remember or a few maybe that you remember really well that will always stick with you? I think my, well, yes. So the one that I remember just because it was right when I started and it's someone that I know, Meredith Paith. She's um, a friend and also, she's a friend of mine, a friend of Jess City, a friend of Josh's, and also we serve on the board of the Mid-South Peace and Justice Center together. And Hers was a quote from Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, and it says, in a just city, you're not the worst thing you've ever done. And I think that that is like, just like, and maybe it was just like the way the picture looked and how she was holding it. And it was like one of the first ones that we did. That's why that one sticks in my mind. Um, And then I think that mine is. Yeah, that was my next question. Yeah, and I think that mine is, in a just city, everyone is free. And it's it's a blanket statement, and I feel like it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. And, like, I know for myself, for me to be in a just city, it's a place where I feel free to be my full authentic self at all times. And people feel free to be themselves, and we can work together. I don't I don't feel like actual cages are around me by being, you know, incarcerated or in systems that don't work. And I don't feel like systems of oppression are being forced down upon me by virtue of my you know, my gender expression or my color or my religion because I have to be these different things. I can be who it is that I am, which is a black woman that loves everybody and wants to do good work and will hold people accountable to doing good work and not being afraid or being ashamed to do that. And for me, that is being free. And when I can be free, I can be my best, the best possible version of myself to help others get free. 
Awesome, man. And I think uh, that's what you've done. Everything you just said there about yourself, you have brought to Just City in ways that um, I couldn't have imagined that day that I met you two years ago in that uh, conference room for your, for your interview. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, we're not going to tear up and cry on the podcast. That, that comes later. No. Um, but thank you for everything. You're going to write some of these things down and re, re, uh, revamp your blog. Yes. Is what you tell me. Yes. Ida-B-Remix.com. Dot com. Yes. Uh, and people can keep up with you there. And um, we will miss you dearly. The whole city will miss you. But thanks for being on the permanent record one last time. Thanks for having me, Josh. And thanks for having me, Memphis. That was Allison Gibbs in conversation and on the permanent record. It was also very sad. But I'm very proud to have worked with Allison these past two years. She already is and will continue to be sorely missed. We can't thank her enough. And on behalf of the Just City Board of Directors, our staff, all the former interns, fellows, volunteers, and supporters who she's ever worked with, we thank you. We'll miss you, Allison. Thanks, as always, to Gilworth and the OAM Network for providing support and distribution of the permanent record. They're the best podcast network in Memphis. Check them out at theoamnetwork.com or next time you're at Crosstown Concourse. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Check out our new website at justcity.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure you subscribe to The Permanent Record on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or just stream our episodes from theoamnetwork.com slash thepermanentrecord. This was our 15th episode. We've had some good ones. Check them out. Let us know what you think. In a just city, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.